We'll have a concluding song and we'll be finished with the corporate time that we're going to have together tonight uh, at around 7.30 and then we'll have some Sunday sandwiches, all right? So why don't we begin with a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you in this evening hour for the opportunity to learn much about prayer, such a vital topic, such an important matter. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would bless our time, give us a sense of greater commitment, greater conviction, greater challenge with regard to this matter of prayer. And we ask that you would teach us much through the pen of Paul by your Holy Spirit so that we may change how we pray in a significant and very tangible way for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. As you know, we have been going through verses 3 to 14 from Ephesians chapter 1, Sovereign Salvation. And I told you at the beginning of that series, that three-part series, that Paul pens a 202-word sentence from verses 3 to 14 in praise to God about His sovereign salvation of us. It is one long sentence in the Greek text. And now, here in verses 15 to 23 of Ephesians 1, Paul gives us another very, very long sentence in which he prays to this sovereign God. This sentence in the Greek text, uh, verses 15 to 23, is 169 words long. So Paul is filled with both rich theology as well as practical instruction for us regarding even our own prayer lives. And I find here in Paul's introductory prayer for the Ephesians, wonderfully convicting teaching, which if we'll listen and learn together, can work toward revolutionizing our private and public prayers to this sovereign God. So let's see what God has for us tonight by way of instruction regarding the vital subject of prayer. Now, if you look at this particular section, verses 15 to 23, there are really two major sections of it. Uh, The first is in verses 15 and 16, and then the major section is in verses 17 all the way to 23. But for our purposes, I want to break that out into three major outline points. Really, two sections, but for our purposes, I want to do three outline points so that we can grasp all that's here. And there is much, much to grasp. Outline point number one. Number one, praying ceaseless and selfless prayers of thanksgiving to a sovereign God. That's what verses 15 and 16 talk about. Praying ceaseless and selfless prayers of thanksgiving to a sovereign God. 
You look at verses 15 and 16 with me. In fact, maybe we should just read the whole section and then we'll look at these two verses. So you follow along as I read in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, Paul says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, as I said, that's one long sentence in the Greek text. And aren't you thankful that you English speakers have uh, commas and semicolons and periods? In a long sentence like that, that's very helpful to us. And the first outline outline point, as I said, praying ceaseless and selfless prayers of thanksgiving to a sovereign God is for us detailed in verses 15 and 16. For this reason, Paul says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not, he says, cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. Now please notice the very first phrase which Paul mentions here in verse 15, for this reason. This phrase, coupled with Paul's hearing of the Ephesian believers' faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints, is tied directly back to what he has just written in verses 3 to 14. When he says, for this reason, he's capturing all that he has just said in those great verses about sovereign salvation. And he's saying, for this reason, as a result of all the things that I've just told you, and because of the reason that I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease praying for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, remember where Paul is when he writes this. Where is he? He's in prison. He's in prison. This is one of these so-called prison epistles. And if you remember that, you are seeing in action a man who is ceaseless in his prayers and very selfless in his prayers. If you and I were to ask the question about ourselves, we're in prison. We're in prison because of our faith. We're in prison because of preaching the gospel. And if we were to be in that prison, and if we were to be chained to a Roman guard or a Thousand Oaks guard, as the the situation might be, you and I, I suspect, at least I would, 
might not be thinking of so many others at that moment, right? I'd be thinking about myself. I'd be thinking about my issues. I'd be thinking about my imprisonment. I'd be thinking about how cold it is. I'd be thinking about these chains that I have. I'd be thinking a lot about myself. And that's not Paul. That's not his heart. He thinks of all of this grand sweep of sovereign salvation and he then thinks of them, the very ones that he'd ministered to for several years and he's apart from them now, he's languishing in a prison and yet his mind, his heart is captivated with God's great sovereign salvation as he's seen it worked out in the lives of other people. That, my friends is a wonderful attribute of the Apostle Paul. And it affects his prayer life. When he writes to them in verses 3 to 14 about all of this rich and robust truth there about our sovereign salvation, it actually informs Paul's prayer right here. Writing from prison, and yet he says, My sovereign Savior, my God, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and what they've secured for us in the Godhead for the salvation of our souls is thrilling to me, and I've been hearing reports. We don't know exactly who the person was who reported back to Paul about the faith of the Ephesians. Could have been Tychicus. Could have been someone like that. Could have been somebody else. Could have been a number of others. And they are talking to Paul and saying, Paul, you would not believe how well the Ephesians are doing. They are doing very, very well. You say, how can you say that? Because he says, I've heard of the love that you have toward the saints. He's not, he's not missing the truth of who they are in Christ and this great salvation that they've received. And he's also hearing about how that sovereign salvation is working itself out practically in their lives because they are growing in Christ in the love that they have for Christ and therefore the love that they have for each other. And so, hearing this report from Tychicus or someone... He says, my brothers and sisters, I am so thankful to God for you. So thankful to God for you. By the way, that particular main verbal idea there in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. That's the main idea of this entire passage. That's the main verbal idea. There's a lot of theology in this section, but that's the main verbal idea. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That's practical theology. Very, very practical theology. And this is Paul. This is his life. This is what he thinks of. He's a very, very thanksgiving-oriented person. He's constantly thanking God for something, usually for believers. This is, this, is, this is what Paul is like whenever he puts pen to paper, pen to parchment. In fact, why don't you sort of stroll with me through a few of these, and I want to show you this. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This is endemic to the pen of Paul. This is his heart. It goes from his heart to his right hand, if he was right-handed, right to his pen, right to the parchment, and he does this repeatedly. Look at Romans chapter 1, 
Notice what he says in verse 8. First, tells the Romans this, first, and by the way, he had never met them. Someone else had, had started that work, and Paul was going to go through there, and he wrote, and he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Now that's an amazing thing. He'd not seen them. He wants to see them. He's so encouraged by their faith. He says their faith is being proclaimed all over the world. I serve the gospel of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And without ceasing, when I heard about how you were making progress in the faith, I want you to know, without ceasing, I am making mention to my God, my thankfulness about you continually ceaseless prayers of thanksgiving. That's Paul. That's his life. That's who he is. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. He says again, and you say, well, yes, he's doing that because it's a letter, and that's what they did in first century letter writing. No, no. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not going to say something that isn't true. Because if it weren't true, it would not make it to the text of Holy Scripture, right? He says, from his heart, sincerely, I give thanks, 1 Corinthians 1, 4, to my God, always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. I thank God for you. I give my thanks to God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He was, thil- he was filled with thanksgiving to the Lord. Philippians chapter 1, another one of these prison epistles. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I mean, look at those phrases. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. I call those 100% words. Always. Every. This is, this is the heart of a man who ministers in the context of continual threats on his life. The plots of the Jews. He's always under intense pressure. And when he's imprisoned, there would be every opportunity for Paul to be focused on himself. Focused on his, his own plight, as it were. But instead, his heart is reaching out to the other believers that he knows and that he loves. Whether he's actually seen them or not. Whether he's ministered to them before. Whether he's met them or not. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. 
Colossians 1.3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Of this... Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Ceaseless, thankful, selfless, thankful prayers to God. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is, this is the regularity of Paul's heart. Chapter 1, verse 2, we give thanks to God how often? What does it say? Always. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God, our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, we ought always to give thanks To God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Even Philemon... Even the little epistle of Philemon speaks of this very, very same thing. In Philemon 4, I thank my God always, Paul says, when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Just letter after letter after letter he's writing to them speaking of his ceaseless and selfless prayers of thanksgiving to God. The very fact that Paul also says that he's remembering these Christians in his prayers reflects the fact that they are in his heart. How selfless that is. What a wonderful, wonderful Man, this Paul must have been. So I ask you the question tonight. Are you so wrapped up in your own pursuits that you don't usually think about, let alone pray for and about those Christians around you? It's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge in a me-oriented world, in a, in a self-engaged world. To be so ceaseless and selfless in our thanksgivings to a sovereign God for other Christians. It's a challenge. How, how often or how little do we pray for the Christians that we know? That's a convicting question, isn't it? It's a very convicting question. It's a very challenging question about how thankful we really are. And how our thankfulness is attributed to a sovereign God who has elected us via God the Father, who's redeemed us through the cross work of Christ, and who sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. 
And Paul says, when I know that God has done this with you, when I've heard of the progress of your faith and how you're beginning to understand these truths in greater and greater and greater ways, I'm so thankful to God for you. I'm so thankful to hear of your progress in the truth. So, what about us? Do, do our prayers, maybe even on a percentage basis, ascend to God more often about ourselves or about others? Don Carson, writing in a, a wonderful book that actually catalogs all of Paul's prayers and then Don Carson's instruction to us about seeing these prayers and how we might be able to pray with Paul. In fact, the title of the book is Praying with Paul, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. This is what he says, very wise words. So, if we intend to imitate the prayers of Paul, we will be attentive to reports of the progress of the gospel, not only in circles immediately around us, but also from places we have never visited. We may subscribe to a missionary organization's newsletter. We may receive the prayer letters of some who are working abroad. We may glance at the news reports found in some Christian magazines when we find reliable reports of people who have by God's grace become Christians. We will learn to respond as Paul does. We immediately turn to the God whose grace has sovereignly intervened in their lives with such happy result and offer him praise and thanksgiving. He goes on to say, If even the angels of heaven rejoice over a single sinner who repents, it does not seem too much to ask people of God to offer thanksgiving at the same news. He's right. He says, finally, when was the last time you offered such thanksgivings to God? Is it conceivable, he said, that we could hear news of people coming to Christ without expressing our gratitude to God? Praying ceaseless and selfless Prayers of thanksgiving to a sovereign God. That's highly, highly critical. Number two, not only pray, praying ceaseless and selfless prayers of thanksgiving to a sovereign God, but also praying intercessory prayers to a sovereign God for wisdom, illumination, and enlightenment. Three very critical things. We're praying to God for others. Praying to a sovereign God. These intercessory prayers and the content of those prayers are for wisdom, for illumination, and for enlightenment. Notice what he says in verses 17 and 18. Here's what I'm praying for. I'm not ceasing to pray for you. I'm praying for you continually thanking God as I remember you in my prayers. And he says that, so here's the content of his prayers, right? If you want to pray scripture back to God, if you want to pray Pauline scripture prayers back to God for the people that you've seen come to Christ, Christians that you know, their sanctification, here's what he says. For this reason, here's what I'm praying, that... 
The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, if you're like me, you're saying, that is a theological prayer. That's a theological prayer. That's not just um, help mommy and daddy. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But the bottom line is Paul, not just because he's a theologian, not just because he receives revelation from God uh, to help Christians grow. Remember, this is a prayer, and he's languishing in prison, but he wants to pray effective prayers. He wants to pray effective intercessory prayers for others. And why does he do that? Because he wants them answered. He wants them answered. And because he wants them answered, he goes to God with what he knows to be true about what God is doing in their lives. And he just says, Lord, I want to buttress in my prayers for these Christians what I know to be true and what I'm asking you to do for them because I know if it's true, I know you're going to answer my prayers. I know you're going to answer them because it's true, because it's what you want. Notice, by the way, the second aspect of his inspired prayers is tied to the concept of the Holy Spirit imparting to believers these intercessory prayer items. Do you see that it there? Wisdom, illumination, and enlightenment. Wisdom, illumination, and enlightenment. Notice some English translations, and the ESV is one of those. It could be right, but notice that it tends to be saying in this verse that the human spirit is in the pursuit of wisdom and illumination for itself. If you notice there, it does not have a capital S for spirit. And of course, the reason is there are no capitals in the Greek text. So there has to be an interpretive choice that's made. And the ESV is actually making the interpretive choice that's saying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, the Christian, Paul's praying, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. So it's the idea that you as a Christian, if this is right, Paul is praying that you will actively, Ephesian believers, pursue wisdom and revelation and enlightenment. And it could mean that. But it might not mean that because other English translations, if you have one, for instance, if you have the NIV, the NIV has verse 17, verse 17 like this. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit of Wisdom, capital S, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Wisdom and Revelation, so that you may know Him better. So, which is it? Is it that the Christian is pursuing in his spirit, God's wisdom and illumination and enlightenment? Or is Paul praying that the Holy Spirit, whom they already possess, who possesses them, the Holy Spirit will be the one to grant them this wisdom and illumination and enlightenment? You say, well, is there 
a difference between the two? Well, maybe to some degree. And maybe we don't have to make such a choice that it's one and not the other. But if you ask me, I would tend to agree that it is the Holy Spirit, capital S. The Holy Spirit. So, Paul says, I'm praying that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give of you from His Spirit wisdom and illumination and enlightenment. That it's the Holy Spirit's work to impart to the believer these things. Now, it's not wrong for the Holy Spirit to impart those things to you, to be sure, and it's not wrong that you, in your human spirit, are pursuing these things and asking for the Word of God to come to you. Neither of those are certainly wrong at all. But here, I think he's emphasizing that it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who imparts the wisdom and the illumination and the enlightenment that we need. And that if he doesn't impart it, We don't receive it. Now, we are actively to pursue it, but we must have the Holy Spirit's work in our lives to bring this to us. I think this particular passage is a lot like 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I want you to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This might be a a very clear parallel passage with this if it's talking about the Holy Spirit imparting to us wisdom, because here the Holy Spirit is said to do that very thing in 1 Corinthians 2.6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, Paul says, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us, in what way? Through the Spirit. You see that? For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. In other words, here, Paul is saying, if you are to receive wisdom and illumination and enlightenment about salvation, about the Christian life, about how you're to walk, it's going to be because the Holy Spirit is imparting this truth to your mind. You're not going to come up with this on your own. The Holy Spirit is going to impart this to you, reveal this to you. Verse 12, now we who have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. He goes on to say that it is the Holy Spirit, not the natural man, who discerns all things spiritually. And he says, but we have the mind of Christ. 
It's a very good parallel text, I think. And it's really saying to us that Paul, here in Ephesians, as he does to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, is asking that we know God better. That's his point. I want you to know God better. And how does he know God better? How does he do that? The Holy Spirit teaches you how to know God better. That's his point. It's the Holy Spirit's work. It's his ministry to give us a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of revelation, what we would call illumination. This is not uh, further revelation from God as though we are to append it to Scripture. It's speaking of the word revelation in the sense of our spiritual illumination. And then he goes on to talk about enlightenment. So if there's any wisdom that we receive from God, if there's any illumination, if there's any enlightenment, it comes to us from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul prays. I pray that God, the Spirit, will give you wisdom. He will illumine your mind. He will enlighten you. I really like what one of the commentators of the book of Ephesians says. This is what he says. The Spirit grants a growing and deeper knowledge of God. This may involve taking cognitive knowledge available through Scripture and impressing it deeply on the human heart so that it becomes a settled conviction. That's what I think is going on here. Paul is praying to the Ephesians that God the Father, through His Spirit would take the Word of God, especially what he says here in verses 3 to 14 about sovereign salvation, teaching these Ephesian believers what they have in Christ. And he says, I pray an intercessory prayer on your behalf that the Holy Spirit would actually take the truth of what I've taught you in Ephesians chapter 1 in this letter and you would be wise, wiser, you would be illumined, to the truth, the greater truth, the greater understanding, the greater enlightenment, the greater level of knowledge and understanding about your salvation, increasing more and more and more in the Christian life, so that that truth becomes for you a settled conviction. Settled conviction. You say, well, what would be one very practical example of that? How about somebody who is genuinely converted to Christ, but who struggles with their assurance, struggles with the security of their salvation. And when you study the Word of God, and when you're asking God for wisdom and illumination and enlightenment about this security that you want to have in Christ, you think you may have it, but the trials and tests of life are some of those things that rock you spiritually, and then you're not sure, and then you have doubts. And yes, you could have someone come to you, another Christian, and say, Oh, brother, don't doubt these things. Uh, don't don't be fooled by, by Satan or others or maybe even other teachers who say that a Christian can lose his or her salvation. Oh, don't do that. And there may be some encouragement there, but what you really need, Paul says, are intercessory prayers that I pray on your behalf to a sovereign God about the salvation that you've received, including the sealing of the Spirit, 
so that you could have a greater wisdom, a greater illumination, a greater enlightenment about that truth so that one day in your Christian life you have a settled conviction about such a thing. Now, my friends, if you and I had people in our lives, and I pray that we do, who would utter intercessory invocations for something like that in your life and my life, do you think you'd be encouraged? you think you'd be encouraged by that? I would be bouncing off the spiritual walls because someone loved me enough, had me in his or her heart that they were praying intercessory prayers to a sovereign God for wisdom and illumination and enlightenment that would encourage me about my faith. That's exactly what's going on here. And it's, and it's really a part of the mind, isn't it? Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. And is this not the mind that was once theirs, these Ephesians? These Gentiles who were once pagan people. Ephesians 4.17 Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. He says, but you haven't learned Christ in this way. You're real Christians now. You're not messing around with the black magic of Ephesus. And there was a lot there. There was a lot of hocus pocus going on there. And he says, you've received real power. And that power is the Holy Spirit teaching you wisdom and illumination and enlightenment about this great salvation that you've received. And your mind has been supernaturally regenerated. And now it's on the path of sanctification. And God is working in you. And what is one of the ways that God works in you? The intercessory prayers of other Christians. That's one way that God does it. Oh yes, He does it through your own ardent study and your pursuit of Christ. He does that, and probably principally so, because you're the one who's active. It's your Christian life. You're pursuing it. You're working hard. You saw that what your mind was as a pagan was a darkened mind, calloused in your thoughts, and now the Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart. He's put you on the level, the path of sanctification, and you're pursuing grace and growth in knowledge. And yes, it is your responsibility to do so. But aren't we so encouraged when other Christians come alongside us and they pray for us? They say, I'm praying for you. I mean, I have so many people who've been saying, praying for your church, praying for your new ministry, praying for you, praying for your preaching. What an encouragement that is. That, that, that God is using other individuals in our lives to pray these intercessory prayers. Lord, give Lance greater wisdom, greater illumination, greater enlightenment as he preaches, as he studies, so that he can teach them and then be taught himself. What an encouragement. That's what God does for us. And what Paul prays for in these prayers exactly is contained for us right here in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know two things. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Two things. Hope, the hope of your calling. 
and this glorious inheritance. So those are two very tangible things that Paul says that I pray intercessory prayers for your wisdom, your illumination, and your enlightenment. And I am praying for wisdom and illumination and enlightenment about two very specific things. That you would ever increase in your understanding of the hope of your calling, the hope to which you've been called, hope in Christ, hope in the gospel, hope of eternal life, and this inheritance which is all of the saints or for all of the saints. And you remember we said before that I think that inheritance is that you and I are God's possession. And so what Paul says, here's the intercessory prayers I'm praying for you. That God would give you a greater spirit of wisdom and illumination and enlightenment by the Holy Spirit so that you could understand a greater level of hope in the gospel. You say, well, if they're saved, they've got that hope. Remember, this is pagan territory here. This is Gentile Asia. There's black magic going on. There are all kinds of people who are doubting these new Christians and slamming them with the idea, you're not really hoping in Christ, are you? In Jesus? No. You've got you've to come back to us. You, you've got to do what we're doing. There's where the real enlightenment is. If you want to be truly illumined, if you really want to have the Sophia, the wisdom, then you have to come over uh, to the Diana Temple. You, you have to worship Artemis. You did that all of your life before, and then this evangelist came along, and he told you about Jesus, and, and you, you say now that you love Jesus, and that you're hoping in him. But what if it's not true? What if you think you have this eternal life that this evangelist is talking about? But it's a sham. You'd better start doing those incantations again. You better start going through uh, those, uh, those rituals again. Because you know if you do that, you're probably going to be on much safer ground. There's a lot of us, there's only a few of you, those Christians that you keep talking about. It could shake them up. It could really give them pause. Many questions could be asked. And Paul says, no, no, no. What I'm praying for you are intercessory prayers for wisdom and illumination and enlightenment so that you can know what is the hope to which you have been called. The hope, the assuring hope of what you've been called to. And that you are God's possession. You're His inheritance in the saints. That's who you are. Don't be shaken from that. And you say, well, I need to study about that. I need to grow in my understanding of that. Yes, you do. And you also need the intercessory prayers of a person like Paul, which availeth or is effective with much. Right? That's, that's what he's saying. So, here's Paul. Ceaseless, selfless prayer warrior to a sovereign God on your behalf. And secondly, he's an intercessor extraordinaire. Praying for them while he's in prison. For the hope of their calling to assure them that they are God's possession. And he's praying these effective intercessory prayers. And thirdly and finally, 
He prays exalted prayers to a sovereign God regarding the glorified Christ. Now I'm going to go through this really fast. You're going to be as frustrated as I am in order to get this one message in tonight. So here it is. Here it is. Notice what he says in verses 19 to 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So Paul says, I want to pray these intercessory prayers, and I want you to have this spirit of wisdom and illumination and enlightenment, and I want to give you three things very practically. The hope of your calling to assure you that you are God's possession and to know the power of God. The power of God. And he says, I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What a prayer. What a prayer. Verse 19. Here's what Paul says. I want to pray for you believers in Ephesus that you would come to be more fully enlightened regarding the immeasurable greatness of God's power which he has bestowed upon you. Notice all these words for power. What is the immeasurable? That's great. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power according to the working of his great might? So, what kind of greatness in power? He says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Oh, no no other power than the power that raised Christ from the dead, that's all. Just... Raising a dead man from the grave, that's all. That's the only power I'm talking about, Paul says. And he says, I am praying these intercessory prayers. In fact, I've moved from intercessory prayers for you to prayers of exaltation to a sovereign God to challenge you and me to understand the great power of God in raising Christ from the dead. And that's what's available to you for your Christian life. That's what he's saying. That's what I pray for you. Look at verse 20. He says, I want to pray for you that you would be enlightened regarding how God worked powerfully when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places and how that same power, he says, is toward you who believe. That same power is toward you. It's given to you. It's coming your way. It's what you can receive. It's what you have. It's what's going to assist you when you are powerless. Now, Christian, Christian person, when you are struggling with whatever struggle that might be, aren't you like me saying, God, I need your greater power? And here's what he says. Here's the power I'm going to give you. It's the power that raised Christ from the dead. And it's toward you who believe. That's the power. You want to tap into that power? And it's the same power that's available to all Christians. We can, we have, we can use, we can rely on this same power to live by faith. To live by faith. Ephesians 3. 
strengthened in another prayer that he prays for them, strengthened with power, with God's power to live by faith. You say, what else, Ephesians, am I going to need? Nothing other than the armor of God, according to Ephesians 6, when I'm, when I'm extinguishing or attempting to all the fiery darts of the evil one. You say, wait a minute, have I got fiery darts coming at me? Yes, yes. And you're going to need a power that is beyond your own. And that power that is beyond your own is actually the power of God. Power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the power that's available to you. And then notice what he says in verse 21. All the way to the first part of verse 22. I want to pray for you that you'd be enlightened to the truth that Jesus Christ is, through the power of God the Father, exalted far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. That's, that's the hierarchy of angelic beings, maybe even in this context, demonic beings. We just said we got to fight against Satan and we need the armor of God. And what he says here is, I'm going to show you the very power that not only raised Christ from the dead, not only seated him in the heavenlies, but also the kind of power that exalted Christ to the place where he is far above all rule and authority and all power, all dominion, and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. I'm giving you the power of the one who has ultimate power. And they needed to understand God's power. They needed God's power. And I've given you the power of the one whom I have chosen to have all things subjected under his feet. And the one whose name is above every name. This sounds like Philippians 2, doesn't it? And this is the power available to you. And then look at the latter part of verse 22 and verse 23. I want to pray for you in this exalted prayer to a sovereign God that you would be enlightened to the truth that not only is Jesus Christ head over all creation, like he's just said, but that he's also been given authority by God to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is the head over all creation, and he's also the head of the church, and he fills the church with himself fully, all in all. That's the power that's available to us. And you have a man in Paul who's praying for these Ephesian believers intercessorily, and he's saying, this exalted Christ is available to you. You're his slave and he's your Lord and he will empower you to live as you ought to live. I mean, this is, this is, this is stupendous. I mean, can you imagine having a prayer warrior on your side like this? You probably have them. Probably a saintly mom or a grandmother or a trusted friend who's been praying for you just like this. I close with Don Carson again. This is what he says. Listen very carefully. Not a drop of rain can fall outside the orb of Jesus' sovereignty. All our days 
our health, our illnesses, our joys, our victories, our tears, our prayers, and the answers to our prayers fall within the sweep of the sovereignty of one who wears a human face, a thorn-shadowed face. All of God's sovereignty is mediated through one who was crucified on our behalf. The mysteries of prayer remain, but they dissolve in worship and gratitude. It is far easier, he says, to accept the mysteries of divine sovereignty when the divine love is as great as the divine sovereignty. All this sovereignty is exercised for the church. John Carson says, this is a stunning thought. God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church. What gratitude this should call from us. What an incentive to pray in line with God's purposes for His people. Then he ends by saying this, Brothers and sisters in Christ, we will sometimes come to places where as we try to think about God, we will conclude that these things are way beyond us. That we cannot comprehend them. But, if we focus on what God has revealed of Himself, such meditation will become a ground not for complaint, not for self-interest, not for fatalism or an excuse for sin, but a ground for worship. And an incentive to approach this sovereign, loving God and intercede with Him according to His own plan and purpose declared in Scripture for His Son's glory and for His people's good. Amen and Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to be prayers like that. We want to be prayers like that. And we must ask ourselves, do we pray like Paul does here to a sovereign God on behalf of God's people? We certainly should, and if we begin now to do so, God will bless us more than I think we could ever ask or think. Father, as we pray together now, silently in our own hearts, we want to pray prayers of thanksgiving for those who we know need our prayers. And we want to intercede for them that they would have wisdom and illumination and enlightenment about the hope of their calling and about their being possessed by God and about the power that's available to us. And we want to pray exultant prayers of thanksgiving. So let's do that now. You pray in your own hearts for a few minutes. Prayers of thanksgiving, ceaselessly and selflessly. And intercessory prayers and prayers of exaltation. You pray for a few minutes.